I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, Y. Kellerman, Saadaid13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. It's a long three-part, three-segment, three-guest episode of Parallax News as we continue our coverage of the Gaza War. First up, we'll be speaking with Antiwar.com news editor Dave DeCamp about two bombshell stories. One from the New York Times that blows the lid off the October 7th Israeli intelligence failure. We'll also be discussing 972 Magazine's reporting on AI systems being used by Israel to hit non-military targets. 972 referred to it as a mass assassination factory. All that and more in our first segment with Antiwar.com's Dave DeCamp. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Dave DeCamp, who is one of the trusted news reporters at antiwar.com he basically runs the news section uh, which very different than the op-eds the op-eds are great but Dave with the news section is just reporting the straight news there's a little bit of editorializing maybe here and there but it it really is the straight stuff Uh, so Dave uh, how are you doing and uh, what's the latest on antiwar.com especially with regards to uh, the Gaza war yeah, I'm doing good, JG. Thanks for having me back on. Um, I mean, there's been so much developing so quick with this, especially since Friday. That's when Israel resumed its campaign in Gaza. It's really brutal bombing campaign and 
there's sending more ground troops into the South now. And, you know, the first phase of this war or slaughter, whatever you want to call it in the North, in North Gaza, they ordered all these Palestinians to evacuate to the South. They continued to bomb the South, but now they're not as much as the North at the time. Now they're really ramping things up in the South where you have all these extra displaced Palestinians and Gaza was already one of the most densely populated places in the world. And now even more so. So the civilian casualties just seem to be climbing, you know, in the hundreds every day. And it's tough to know exactly what's happening on the ground when it comes to the fighting, but it's very clear that Israel's back to, you know, basically leveling the place. Even after we've seen the U S officials give these warnings about civilian casualties, but it's clear that the U.S. doesn't really mean it. They're sending them 2,000-pound bombs on the other hand, and uh, it's clear that Israel's not listening if we just see what they're doing in Gaza. What do you make of this New York Times story that came out uh, saying that Israel was aware of sort of blueprints or detailed attack plans uh, a year in advance? Now, of course, I, I think we should note this New York Times piece wasn't saying, oh, the Israelis knew that it was going to happen on October 7th. But maybe you can explain the story so people aren't uh, misinformed about it. Yeah, so this was a bombshell report from the New York Times. We've seen a lot of indication that these Israeli military leadership, Israeli leadership in general, was ignoring warnings that they were receiving from Israeli troops stationed uh, basically on the Gaza border. There was a some Israeli women who their job is basically to look at surveillance footage of Gaza, of the Gaza fence, you know, the general border area. And they were giving warnings, you know, in the months leading up to their superiors that they say were being ignored. Haaretz recently had a report on that. And th but this story from the New York Times said something, you know, much bigger. It's basically said for over a year, Israel had this document that outlined this plan for a big Hamas attack on Israel. It was called Jericho wall was what the, the Israelis named it. And it said in detail, it outlined basically what exactly Hamas did on October 7th with the paragliders with, you know, coming by boat coming with fighters on the ground. Uh, and their goal was to attack certain military sites um, of course, civilians got caught up in the middle and Hamas definitely killed civilians. There's also this is kind of another whole story uh, that there is some evidence that Israeli forces also killed Israeli civilians, you know, kind of in the crossfire. Um, but what this says basically is that they knew Hamas was planning something big. And it also goes into how Israeli troops on the border were seeing them rehearse for this specific plan. And like you said, it didn't mention October 7th, but it seemed pretty clear that Israel should have had enough warning to prevent this thing or at least, uh, you know, put it down a little bit. There was just so many signs, uh, but they ignored it. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation you could get into here about if Israel let it happen or something like that. I would say if if they did let it happen, they didn't think it was going to be as big as it was. I mean, this was a major attack. This was basically the biggest attack on Israel by the Palestinians that's ever happened. And also, it looked like the Netanyahu government kind of wanted to just ignore Gaza. They were ver they're very focused on the West Bank in the past year since this new Netanyahu government came in at the end of December 2022, which includes very extremist settlers who want to annex the West Bank. They say so explicitly. They were moving to really expand settlements. We saw a lot of Israeli raids in Jenin. Uh, a West Bank town and refugee camp. 
you know, at the scale that we haven't seen since, you know, the intifadas since the early 2000s, really. So it did seem like they kind of they were happy to have Gaza under blockade. They could bomb it once in a while if they if Hamas fires too many rockets. But to me, it kind of seems like they just wanted to keep Gaza the way kind of the status quo and focus on the West Bank. So I wouldn't say that they probably let it happen. That, that's just my kind of view of it. Um, but there's definitely lots of speculation and conversations we could have about it. But that, that that's that's my take on it. Um, but still, this is a big bombshell scoop. And I didn't see that Israel denied this. Um, Netanyahu is kind of trying to shift the blame on the military. And it's interesting, the New York Times had a follow-up report that basically said, after these revelations, uh, there's been more criticism of Israeli generals and military brass, but there's not, there hasn't been any kind of reckoning because for the most part, the people of Israel support this brutal war in Gaza. There's a poll recently that showed they don't think the IDF is using enough firepower in Gaza. So, you know, it kind of reminds me of back in after 9-11. It's interesting because you could look back and just see uh, plainly the, the news reports were basically saying that the Taliban wanted to hand over bin Laden. They wanted to negotiate. And I remember at the time I was pretty young, but I do remember the whole like, oh, we won't negotiate with terrorists thing. And everybody was just all kind of rah, rah you know, go in there and just blow stuff up. So I, that's probably how the Israeli public is feeling now as well. So, but this is going to be something people look back on in a few years as a pretty big, big deal. You know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about that was uh, there's been a lot of focus on, I guess, the element of Israel not listening to, I guess, these female spies or analysts that were saying, hey, we've seen the paragliders, they're, they're getting ready to do something. We don't know when we've seen the blueprints. Um, and I guess the machismo of, uh, Israeli military culture, Intel culture, sort of preventing them from listening to these women. Uh, but the other thing that I've often heard, I- I'm hearing a lot of people say, well, should we really take this report from the New York times seriously? Is this just an example of, um, sort of CYA or cover your ass, uh, for Israel. And I think that people may be on the wrong sort of footing when they assume that there's no relevance to this report, that it's just a, a case of Israel trying to do CYA. Yeah, I would I, I would uh, argue against that idea just because it, it doesn't make them look good. <laughs> you know, uh, there's nothing in here that is going to benefit, I, at least I don't think, you know, the current Israeli government, you know, Netanyahu, again, while I say that people are supporting the war, Politically, Netanyahu is in a lot of trouble, and I think that's one of the reasons why he wants to keep this war going, because as soon as it ends, I think uh, they're going to look to vote him out. According to polling, people are blaming the government. You know, The vast majority of Israelis are blaming the government for the attack, for letting it happen. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't view it as that. Now, it could be something from uh, you know, the Israeli more military establishment kind of just looking for the future. Maybe they do want the Netanyahu government out of there. Uh, that could be why this was leaked is whoever did so wants Netanyahu out and wants a new government in. Um, that's definitely a possibility, but I still don't think that that changes kind of the magnitude of what this thing says. Yeah, I don't I don't think it makes uh, Israel look very good, even if there were apparently voices uh, in Israel saying, hey, we should worry about this. There could be an attack at some point. It really does not... I mean, it does not reflect well on Israel in any way that this was all ignored. Also, there was a story that's been breaking about a mass assassination program. Uh, and this was broken by 972. What's the story on that? Yeah, uh, they had a really uh, 
thorough report. Uh, you know, keep in mind these are their anonymous Israeli intelligence sources, but 972 is an Israeli magazine. And it seemed like pretty pretty thorough reporting, like I said. And and basically what it outlines is you mentioned the mass assassination factory. And that is referring to an AI program that they have that uh, I forget what the Hebrew name is, but it translates to the gospel in English. And that program picks out targets at a very fast rate that normal, uh, you know, human intelligence analysts would not be able to, uh, you know, do that at, at such a quick pace. But what this, the information that this program is using apparently is based on where low level Hamas, you know, they say military, but I think they're also targeting, I would guess they're also targeting political uh, members of Hamas as well, considering how many people they're bombing. But that program is specifically being used to pick out targets of, of low-level Hamas people and, and where they live. So it's wiping out their, it's picking targets that wipe out their families. And there's been a lot of testimony from Palestinians of these airstrikes on on homes, on private homes that wipe out entire families where they say there was no, nobody was a Hamas military member. And this was, this isn't just uh, speculative, you know, this was also included in the report that there's a lot of evidence that they are just wiping out pe- families of people who are not even in Hamas. So that was kind of the specific thing about the AI system. And, but th- that report revealed what is pretty clear if, if you're paying attention to what's happening in Gaza which is the massive civilian death toll, you know, at the New York Times recently called a historic pace. You know, there's no modern war. You have to go back to at least Vietnam to see such a high civilian casualty rate in an air campaign like this. And What's it's interesting a- is, I, I don't know if you've seen the uh, casualty rate for Hamas, but it's much lower. Like what, yeah. what I'm saying is that they're killing all these civilians and while they're saying the war is against Hamas, but really, they have not really put much of a dent into Hamas's 30,000 combatants. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, the estimate is one to 2,000. I, I, that's, that's what I saw in The Guardian based on what Israeli officials said. Yeah, one to 2,000 out of at least 15,000 people have been killed now, and that's probably a low estimate. Um, and there's a chance that in that death toll, they're not counting Hamas fighters because a lot of them are in the tunnels, and if they drop a bunker buster on a tunnel and it collapses – down underground, you know, people aren't digging them out. So, yeah, and, and again, you know, you hear all this talk from the U.S. It's like, oh, no other, you know, modern military is so careful to avoid civilian casualties. It's like, how can they say, you know, either they're just really horrible at what they're trying to do or they're trying to kill civilians. And that's what this 972 report says. Basically, you know, there's a few aspects to it here. One of them is that They've approved strikes that would kill hundreds of civilians to kill one Hamas guy. And again, these are like mid-level, low-level people that they say they're targeting. Um, so how, you know, they call that collateral damage, but how is that collateral damage if the vast majority of people being killed are civilians? And even if young children are targeted, they had one quote from an Israeli source who said, everything is intentional. If a three-year-old girl is killed, it's because uh, the Israeli military decided that it was worth, you know, she was worth killing basically. So it's just really brutal stuff. And they also detailed how they targeted what they call power targets, which are like civilian buildings, including the high rise. We see a lot of these high rise apartment buildings being destroyed. And the purpose of destroying them is to, they say, 
put pressure on Hamas by, you know, they're hoping that by destroying those buildings and civilian areas, the people will put pressure on Hamas. But, I, you know, that's clearly, to me, it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. It seems like, if anything, it's increasing support for Hamas because right now Hamas is the force that's fighting against the Israeli troops that are invading. You know, you destroy people's homes and wipe out their families. It's just, how is that? You think they're not going to turn against Israel and people that might not have picked up a gun before or are not going to pick up a gun now, now that their whole family's been killed? Um, to me, that seems pretty clear. So I think that report might have been a little generous to Israel, even though it detailed such barbarity. I think it's clear, and, and it's clear from comments that we see from Israeli officials that they want to just wipe out the Palestinians in Gaza. They want to either push them all out. Uh, I think that's the goal. They wish they would, Egypt would just open their border and all 2 million of them would just go into Egypt and that would be that. But since that Egypt's not going to do that, they're just trying to kill as many as they can right now. That's that's what it seems like to me. And I think after reading that report, it's tough to argue against that killing civilians and and destroying, you know, kind of this terror campaign is is the goal. So before we start wrapping up, I want to get into a few other flashpoints, but also where do you think this is all headed with regards to how the U.S. is reacting? Because I I mean, I'm not saying that we should put much stock into this, but I am starting to see certain officials or former officials saying things like, well, if it keeps going this way, the U.S. relationship with Israel may be in for some tough times. I do think there's at least signaling that, hey, there's too many civilians dying. I mean, there is some signaling from that in the Biden administration. The cynical part of me says, well, you know, yes, and, but what are they going to do about it? But do you think there is going to have to be maybe a reckoning at some point? Because this, I mean, this has the potential to um, hurt Biden in the reelection, especially with the campaign amongst Arab Americans, particularly in Michigan, to say, abandon Biden, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there definitely is real pressure on Biden from the Democrats, from some Democrats, at least. And, and that is building. Uh, it still seems to be the majority support continuing this thing. But uh, I don't think it's the dissent is anything that should be written off. We've seen State Department dissent cables, you know, kind of a lot of people within the State Department, USAID, really speaking out strongly against what Israel's doing in Gaza. That seems significant. And I think it will build among the Democrats in Congress because their constituents are are calling them and, and bugging them about this. So, um, you know, there's there's about a year till the next election. So that's a long time. So is Biden going to be able to keep continue supporting this war, which Israelis officials say is going to last over a year? Is he going to be able to continue this thing for a year? Um, it's tough to say. It, it It's tough to think that it can keep going on like this, how brutal it's been for that long. But I think, you know, Biden politically, he's not doing very good as it is, but this 2024 election, I think is really hard to predict considering well, everything no, I, that's happening with is Trump. Like, I was just going to say with, it's not just like a Biden issue, but I, I suspect there's even some concern within the sort of bureaucratic or what a lot of people would call the deep state mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to this war, because I mean, it's not like U.S. relations with the global South have been good before, uh, but now any attempt to repair those is going to be, you know, all but jettisoned. I mean, the global South is looking at this and saying, no, we're pro-Palestinian. I mean, this 
this war is going to have knock-on effects mm-hmm. for U.S. policy going forward in ways that go beyond the Israel-Palestine issue. And I think there is concern for that, uh, concern about that within D.C., within the blob. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I mean, you just look at what Blinken and Sullivan and all these Biden officials have been saying for the past you know, two years about Russia and Ukraine. And a lot of countries, a lot of the global South already view that as Hippocratic, considering the U.S. history, you know, all these the lecturing that they're doing when it comes to Russia. But now, you know, more so, I mean, it's just so glaring now that they're sitting back and as Israel is just slaughtering civilians at this unprecedented rate. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, they're probably hoping that this thing doesn't last too much longer. But at the same time, it's pretty clear that Israel's kind of full steam ahead. I do think a Republican president, if it comes in and and if you know the, there is a switch and they come in in 2024 and this is still going on, then it's going to be probably worse when it comes to the U.S. support for Israel. They're just going to say, no, we don't need to get aid into Gaza. Just keep going. Um, but again, it's hard to imagine this thing going on at this scale in a year. Uh, but yeah, I, I think within the, the deep state, uh, they are kind of hoping that this thing doesn't last too long. And I know that's a message that Blinken brought to Israel when he was there. I think they want to kind of wrap this thing up quick, but how is that going to happen? Right. Especially when Israel is like, we're going to be here at least a year, man. Yeah. (laughs) And saying, you know, you have Blinken, Biden saying, oh, you know, we need a two-state solution after this. Israel can't reoccupy Gaza. And then you have Netanyahu saying, no, we're going to control Gaza after this. Like, Did you see that? um, I think it was in the Times of Israel where, Netanyahu was telling the uh, Lakut lawmakers, I, I alone am the only one that can stop a Palestinian state from forming. And then, you know, he, he keeps all this bluster up and he says at the end, I've known Biden for 40 years. I know how to talk to the American people. He's like bragging about having influence, you know, and I'm yeah. just like, yeah, it's I, I think there's a lot of things at work right now. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's tough to predict what's going to happen in the next few because months. It's very clear. Like Netanyahu, I mean, he's openly said, he's like, I will prevent a Palestinian state. I'm the only one that can do it. I mean, he doesn't want, they don't want a two-state. You mm-hmm. know, I think even Lapid recently has said they're not interested in a two-state. And he's considered like the voice of reason uh, to yeah. Westerners that follow Israel. And even Benny Gantz. Benny Gantz has said, well, he said last year at the Munich Security Council you know, there will be a Palestinian entity, maybe, but, you know, not a state. So, I mean, I, I feel like there is a disconnect between Israel and uh, the Biden administration on the two state issue. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I mean, it, just before the October 7th Hamas attack, when Netanyahu gave his speech at the U.N. General Assembly, he held up a map of the Middle East that just showed Israel and included the West Bank and Gaza. Um, so it's clear, you know, that's been Netanyahu's thing all along since the 90s, you know, is preventing a Palestinian state. So this rhetoric from Biden, I mean, it's kind of irrelevant what Bi- what the Biden administration is saying publicly because Israel's not going to listen. And again, I think a Republican administration, you know, you look at how Trump was. Trump let Israel just do whatever it wants, gave it gave it everything it wanted, declared West Bank settlements lo- no longer illegal. Um so, you know, if we have kind of the aftermath of this Gaza war and then a Republican comes in, then they're just going to say, you know, do whatever you want. Let, and it's let's talk it's not really be good. Let's talk really briefly about that, because mm-hmm. I keep hearing this. I would I mean, I'm trying to be objective here, but I'm going to call a spade a spade. I keep hearing this bullshit line from MAGA types 
and even some people that I wouldn't call MAGA, such as the Israeli sort of um, public intellectual pop historian futurist uh, Yuval Noah Harari saying things like, oh, you know, the Abraham Accords, it was bringing about an Arab-Israeli peace. And in Harari's case, he even went as far as to say, you know, Hamas did this attack because there was the Arab-Israeli normalization, especially between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And that would have led to a new Palestinian peace process. He actually said that. (laughs) And, you know, I'm just sitting there in shock because I'm like, it's a bald-faced lie. It is a literal bald-faced lie. I mean, the whole point of the Abraham Accords, based on everyone I've talked to, experts in the region, it, it was shelving the Palestinian uh, issue completely. Yeah, you're right. It was selling them out, basically. Uh, the Saudi-Israel talks actually seemed to be prog- progressing pretty quickly, much quicker than I thought they would in this past year, before October 7th, obviously. And one of the reasons why was, you know, the Saudis always said no normalization until there's a Palestinian state. Well, they dropped that. And there was actually reports that said the Saudis basically didn't, that was just a secondary issue. It didn't even matter when it came to the normalization deal. What they wanted was a defense commitment from the US and a nuclear uh, power program. So the Saudis were ready to basically just completely uh, forget about the Palestinians they were normalize. willing to throw the, the Palestinians under the bus because, oh, maybe we can get nukes down the line. Yeah. And I think it, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, the Abraham Accords were not peace deals. These countries weren't at war. And I think, you know, this shows that they had nothing to do with when it comes to peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Well, hey, thanks again, David DeCamp, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with uh, your work? You're also on YouTube now. Yeah, uh, if you go to antiwar.com, you'll see the top news section. That's where most of my writing is. Um, I've been doing a daily podcast called Anti-War News with Dave DeCamp. It's uh, also on YouTube, the channel you can find there on Rumble and Odyssey if people prefer to watch over there. And then you could download the audio version wherever you listen to podcasts. On the next segment of this edition of Parallax Views, we'll be speaking with David C. Hendrickson, president of the John Quincy Adams Society and emeritus professor at Colorado College. We'll be discussing the Gaza War, Israel's reaction to it, the Biden administration, foreign policy and international relations realism, and its different varieties, if you will, and much, much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with David C. Hendrickson. Welcome back to Parallax News, guest that I really enjoy speaking to. We've had him on once before to promote his book, Freedom, Independence, Peace, John Quincy Adams and American Foreign Policy. Welcome back to the show, David C. Hendrickson, who I should mention is the Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Colorado College. How are you doing? I'm good. So there is a lot going on in the world right now, and we're going to talk quite a bit about Gaza and the Israel-Palestine issue and the U.S.-Israel special relationship. But we now have this war in Gaza. Um, I I know some people wouldn't even call it a war so much. It's just a a, a slaughter that we're seeing. 
you have two articles about this. Uh, the morality of ending war short of uh, total victory, which is a responsible statecraft piece you wrote. And then you wrote for American conservative endgame for Gaza. Uh, I guess I want to start with the responsible statecraft piece uh, because you sort of uh, take to task uh, the figure of Michael Walzer, the author of Just and Unjust Wars, who has this view that there's a, a humane way to destroy Hamas and Gaza. And I've seen a few other people take him to task for this, but uh, maybe you could discuss uh, what led you to write this piece for responsible statecraft in your analysis. Uh, you know, you mentioning Walzer in the context of Kissinger reminds me that I've said some kind words about Walzer in the past. And I do think that Justin, Justin, Justin and Just Wars is a great book. So I have a lot of regard for Walzer. And uh, uh, I've said that before, and uh, people have pounced on me for saying, <laughs> no, he's a rat. Well, I don't know. I can't summon within myself uh, the vast stores of enmity that uh, many commentators seem to be able to draw upon when discussing important figures. Uh, so uh, let me say, first of all, that uh, people should read Just and Unjust Wars. And it's a uh, it's in many respects a, a really a marvelous book that brought discourse about the just war back into uh, widespread public discussions. Uh, but if you one of the reasons why it's a great book is that you can draw upon the criteria that he uh, sets forth for just on bellum, that is the justice of going to war, and just in bellow, the law governing the conduct of war, and draw conclusions that are quite opposite to those that he has drawn with respect to the current conflict in Gaza. Uh, Walter's always had a problem of what might one might call the Israeli exception, that uh, acts that he would condemn and others quite vociferously turn out to have, you know, something of a justification when Israel engages them. I was going to say he has, you know, if you were to look side by side, his views on the uh, atomic destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or uh, even just, you know, what happened in Vietnam, his views on that are very much in stark contrast to what he has said about Gaza. Yes. And that was the gravamen of my article, that if you apply the criteria that, uh, that Walzer uh, set forth with respect to uh, Hiroshima, as well as the conduct of the war in Vietnam. Uh, the conclusion is that what Israel is doing uh, cannot be justified. And uh, Walzer has this idea in following or, or influencing, or running very much in parallel with that of the Biden administration, that it's possible to adopt the destruction of Hamas as a war aim and conduct that war within the confines of the war convention or with respect to the law of humanitarian warfare. And I think the obvious situation that we're in is that the that war aim of, of destroying Hamas inevitably t entails a gigantic cost to the civilian population of Gaza. Uh, and uh, what the Israelis are doing there is just incredible. I mean, they're really trying to render the place uninhabitable. And, uh, you know, it may be that they will succeed in that. Uh, uh, that is, they will succeed in their ultimate aim of kicking all of those people out. 
whether to the Egyptian Sinai in the first instance or to a range of other countries, uh, both in the Arab world and in Europe. Uh, and uh, the, the United States has really uh, pushed back uh, hardly at all with respect to that. I mean, we've been shrieking in horror uh, to a certain extent at, at the massive cost to civilians. But uh, at the same time, you know, funneling the Israelis 2,000 pound bombs to uh, wreak havoc uh, in that little strip of land. And uh, I, I just think that the, that war aim of destroying Hamas is uh, the ultimate culprit in that regard, that those results follow from that war aim. And that's the thing that's desperately in need of reconsideration. One of the questions I've been asked on Twitter and social media lately is, well, if if Israel isn't to dedicate itself to the complete destruction and eradication of Hamas in Gaza, what else could Israel have done? And I've said, well, there's always, you know, um, sort of targeted police action, you know, like I, I, I don't know what that would look like, but, you know, I think you could uh, send in IDF soldiers to those tunnels without having to bomb the entire population. Uh, I, what, what's your view on that? Because that's that's the question that I often get asked is, well, what else could Israel possibly do? Well, if it doesn't kill or expel the population, it's going to have to adopt in the future some kind of containment strategy. And... Uh, the uh, you know the fact is is that the Israelis made a gigantic series of blunders with regard to the protection of their southern frontier. They left it essentially undefended, and and uh, you know they transferred most of their battalions to the West Bank, thinking that that was where the trouble was likely to be because they're pursuing this policy of ethnic cleansing there too, and uh, the. the uh, uh, instead of addressing the specific vulnerabilities that were revealed on October 7th, uh, you know, actually having soldiers there that were capable of shooting down paragliders, uh, you know, being prepared for some sort of an incursion, they immediately concluded that there was no alternative but just to, just to utterly destroy Hamas. But as I say, you cannot utterly destroy Hamas given how thickly populated that little strip is, uh, without committing a moral enormity and imposing gigantic costs upon the civilian population. And it's no answer to say that, well, they're all guilty. I mean, that kind of totalistic reasoning is uh, is absurd in my view. And the... the uh, you know, the bottom line is that the 2.2 million people in Gaza have sympathizers all over the Islamic world and beyond the Islamic world. Yeah, I was going to say one of one of the big issues I, I could see this impacting is uh, any attempts for the U.S. to, you know, better relations with the global south, because as far as I can tell, most of the global south, maybe with exceptions like India, um, although that's changing in some ways, um, are supportive of Palestine. So. 
Absolutely. And uh, I never thought much of this, uh, you know, grand rapprochement with uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think that that's been badly uh, mischaracterized in the press. You know, people wrote about it as if it was practically a done deal before October 7th. And uh, I, I don't think it was. I think we're, they were very far from reaching some sort of an accommodation with the Saudis and that the Saudis were kind of playing the United States along while seeking cover for their uh, new relationship with China. Um, but but the, uh, yeah, <laughs> U.S. policy in giving uh, just unlimited support to Israel you know, kind of bitching behind the scenes a little bit and saying, oh, you know, kind of be nice as you're pursuing these policies of annihilation. Uh, you know, as, as you have, has, as, not to interrupt you, but as you have even, you know, Isaac Herzog, the president of Israel, uh, who's considered moderate compared to Netanyahu or figures even further to the right, like Smotrich and Ben Giver, um, you know, even Isaac Herzog has said there are no innocents in Gaza. I mean, and we, yeah, we're saying, hey, you know, uh, try to keep the civilian casualties down. Well, when you have even someone like Herzog saying, well, there are no civilians, they're all guilty. I mean, it right. seems like there's a disconnect. It, it would seem so. Well, yeah, Israeli public opinion is just off the charts in terms of how it views this. I mean, there are no doves anymore, apparently. And uh, but, you know, looking down the road, as I say, unless they kill or expel the population, they're still going to have to deal with, uh, you know, some kind of containment strategy. And uh, I just don't think that they can succeed in beating the Palestinians into submission. Uh, you know, they'll still have a security problem from them. And uh, this course of action that they've taken, I think, really worsens that security problem and and uh, creates a, uh, a, a very all-consuming hatred toward Israel in uh, large swaths, not only of the Arab and Islamic world, but in the global South more generally. So, uh, and, and that opposition also manifests itself, manifests itself in the West, uh, as we've seen with the gigantic demonstrations against Israel's actions that have occurred in, in the United States and other Western cities. So I think they're, I think they're pursuing a foolhardy course in that regard, and uh, that the United States is fully complicit in that and that the United States needs to tell the Israelis to cut it out. Real quick, just to go back to this, what course of action do you think could have been taken immediately after October 7th, um, other than maybe, uh, you know, an extreme looking inward to at, at how this kind of extreme intelligence and operational failure happened? What are some of the other ways that, that potentially Israel could have responded well, it might have paid attention to the specific inadequacies that enabled Hamas to undertake this uh, action on October 7th. 
you know, they left their frontier essentially denuded. Uh, they were uh, uh, they were focused on the West Bank. Uh, they couldn't imagine that Hamas would do this, and so there were, you know, ten different steps that they could have taken to fortify that frontier, uh, so as to prevent Hamas from doing something like this in the future. That uh, the Israelis essentially just paid no attention about. They they thought that the only way to deal with this th was through this annihilating counteroffensive. And as I say, I don't think that that really solves their security problem uh, at all. To do that, it's uh, acting in the the flush of anger rather than considering the long term consequences that are likely to ensue from this course of action, including potentially creating uh, an entire new generation of um, militant resistance to Israel in, in Gaza and the West Bank. Yeah, well, sure. You know, it is uh, important to remember that Osama bin Laden, you know, got the idea for attacking the Twin Towers from his observations of the uh, heinous actions that the Israelis took in 1982 in Lebanon when they surrounded Beirut and then bombarded the city over the course of that summer. And uh, so, yeah, these over-the-top responses and grievous wounds that, uh, that states commit against one another, uh, I think, represent uh, not only something which is morally wrong, but also something that is deeply prejudicial to the long interest, the long-term interest of the states who engage in them. Uh, now, you know, the Israelis have invoked Dresden, Hiroshima, and uh, various other war crimes that the United States committed in the course of the Second World War, but there's a huge difference between those two cases because Germany and Japan were essentially friendless uh, at the uh, in 1945, whereas uh, the Palestinians of Gaza enjoy uh, widespread sympathy, uh, not only in the Islamic world but just to you know throughout the global South and even in the West. So there's no way to really you know annihilate them without creating uh, more supporters in that vast hinterland. Than, uh, than existed before you took those actions. So I think that they're acting out of uh, anger and uh, vengeance rather than considering the fact that they're always going to have a security problem with uh, the Arabs in their immediate neighborhood. They can't extirpate them uh, without incurring even greater dangers to the legitimacy of the Israeli state. Uh, so, you know, they have to deal with them in a more measured fashion. And I think, as I say, you know, given the just extraordinary uh, lapses in uh, Israeli intelligence and in the army with respect to what was going on on that frontier with Gaza, uh, you know, the obvious course of action would be to try to remedy those deficiencies rather than embark on this mad project to uh, to expel 
the Palestinian prop- population from the Strip. And I think that's clearly what they want to do. And, you know, they may be successful in it in part because they are rendering Gaza uninhabitable. Uh, that's what they've said they intended to do. That's what they're doing. So I don't know that, uh, I don't know where those people go. Uh, Egypt will not take them. Uh, and uh, so they're, they're trapped uh, in this very narrow piece of territory. And uh, the, the human suffering that is, go- that is ongoing and that will get worse because of the impact of disease, uh, I think amounts to something that will constitute a huge blot on Israel's reputation forever and on. And uh, I think it's a huge mistake on their part to uh, to, to, to have done that. It, it's interesting you say that because I've actually had some guests say that, uh, you know, in a way, um, Hamas sort of set a trap for Israel in the sense that I think I think Hamas calculated that Israel would respond this way and, you know, it would respond in such a way that it would actually incur a lot of uh, odium. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really unclear. Um, you know, I, I do think that there is some evidence for the proposition that they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. <clears throat> you know, that this was a case of catastrophic success, as it were. Uh, they clearly wanted to uh, get a lot of hostages. And uh, they wanted to uh, uh, object strongly in the strongest possible terms to what the Israelis were doing with respect to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Uh, That's a factor that's been almost totally ignored in U.S. commentary about it. Uh, about the war, but in fact, it was extremely important. And, uh, you know, this new Israeli government with uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich has plans for the, uh, uh, for Temple Mount and uh, for Jerusalem. It basically entailed the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the construction of a third temple and, uh, and to boot, the widespread expulsion of the Palestinians from the uh, from the West Bank. So uh, Hamas took that very seriously, and uh, I do think that the hostage uh, question was really their their kind of primary thing. And uh, yes, they anticipated some kind of an Israeli reaction. Did they anticipate? Uh, you know, the Dahia doctrine uh, magnified a hundred times. Well, I'm not sure that they did. Uh, uh, or at least insofar as they did think that, they thought that they could withstand the blows and that Israel would not be able to successfully complete its mission without causing such revulsion in world public opinion that they would be forced to stop. So we don't really know what those calculations were. I mean, obviously, they would have anticipated a ferocious Israeli reaction in some part. Uh, but whether they anticipated the lengths to which the Israelis 
uh, have gone, I think is remains an open question. I don't really know the answer to that. I, I mean, was, in, in any case, I mean, they, I think they did, they did ultimately, uh, I would say score a major victory, even if briefly uh, against Israel in the, I mean, they essentially defeated the Gaza division for a very short period of time. Well, there wasn't much into that in that Gaza division. I mean, three battalions had been transferred to the West Bank, which is where the Israeli government, you know, thought the action was going to be. And uh, I think that frontier was, you know, essentially undefended. Barren. They, yeah, they put their they put their faith in a set of uh, in a set of measures, the fence and cameras and that sort of thing that were easily overcome. And you know. <laughs> There was a recent piece showing that, you know, there were some people uh, in in Israeli intelligence uh, who drew attention to the very war plan that Hamas undertook. On oh, October this was 7th. the. Um, I, I I guess they were Israeli um, spies or intelligence uh, analysts. Yeah, the, the, the women the, that were saying, "Hey, women yeah. who, who, who totally called it." And uh, down to the last, uh, you know, little tactical maneuver with respect to what Hamas might do. And, uh, you know, that was just essentially ignored. The Israelis had a kind of concept of what Hamas was going to do. And, uh, you know, took as evidence that they would not launch any major attack. The fact that, uh, you know, they wanted to get 20,000 workers into uh, into Israel, that they were, uh, uh, you know, that they'd kind of turned a new leaf and, and concluded that any kind of military action was uh, not in their interest. Well, they were massively wrong about that. But, you know, instead of repairing those very specific inadequacies, uh, they've launched this all-out blitzkrieg on, uh, on Gaza. And you know, had they had they responded to the specific inadequacies that that October seventh attack revealed, uh, you know, they could have done a lot to prevent you know paragliders from coming across the border, or you know, security cameras from getting disabled, uh, and that sort of thing. So, you know, they had a, as I say, an essentially undefended border. Uh, on October 7th. And the obvious response would be to repair those specific inadequacies instead of going all out to uh, wreak havoc in, in Gaza. So I saw that you mentioned it in one of your articles, and it's been making the rounds a lot. Uh, there was this really incredible uh, investigation done by 972 magazine out of Israel uh, entitled A Mass Assassination Factory Inside Israel's Calculated Bombing of Gaza. Uh, so these airstrikes are using artificial intelligence systems uh, to target uh, non-military uh, targets. Uh, how important do you think this story is? Well, I think it's hugely important. I mean, it, it shows that they've basically uh you know gone to extreme lengths in applying the Dahia doctrine that they've essentially eliminated the kind of uh restraints that previously existed in what were after all pretty savage Israeli air campaigns 
with respect to the number of people likely to be killed, number of civilians likely to be killed if the Israelis took out Hamas leaders. Now, no one really knows what the uh, what the the civilian to combat combatant ratio is in uh, in the Gaza war, but to my mind, it's got to be extremely high. I mean, Israeli targeting doctrine is such as to accept uh, the loss of two thousand or two hundred uh, uh, Gazan civilians if one senior Hamas leader can be killed. And uh, so you have a uh, an intensification of of that Dahia doctrine, you know, dating from the uh, two thousand and six Lebanon war, uh, that is just creating the most horrific humanitarian conditions uh, imaginable. And uh, uh, I don't think that that kind of extremity is ever in the interest of of a state. I think that uh, in in some fashion or another, it almost invariably entails uh, retribution. And uh, I mean, I acknowledge that one can draw attention to episodes in history like Hiroshima and uh, like Dresden, in which that kind of retribution is not forthcoming, where the victory is so total that the defeated power has no alternative but to submit. I don't see that happening in this case. And uh, I think that Israel is doing itself uh, no favors in uh, in pursuing this war without limits. This gets into an interesting discussion of, um, do you think there's an issue where people mistake having a sort of realist view of international relations and how to carry out foreign policy with essentially what is a brutal social Darwinian might makes right uh, view of how international relations work. Uh, Because I I think sometimes people confuse the two. I've talked to a lot of realists on my show, and I wouldn't say that they're in favor of a, of a sort of um, maximizing uh, agenda when it comes to power. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, all of these uh, isms, you know, realism, liberalism, Marxism, constructivism, uh, there's an inf- infinite number of isms these days, t- typically tend to be divided between hard and soft versions. And uh, I think that that division over the justice and expediency of force is the great division in international thought and actually more important than many of the distinctions that are drawn between the respective doctrines of realism, liberalism, Marxism, etc. Because they're hard and soft versions of all of those particular viewpoints. I, you know, I don't consider myself uh, a realist in the school, say, of John Mearsheimer, because Mearsheimer has tried to construct a science in which moral considerations are pushed to the side, and in which is empirical in terms of its ability to predict how states will act. Uh, and I, I think that that's the wrong approach to international relations. I think the normative elements are, have to be central 
uh, that they're always ever present in conflict and that they, uh, you know, the uh, admonitions contained in the law of nations, international law with respect to justifications for the use of force and uh, for the conduct of war are uh, indispensable in assessing uh, armed conflict. Now, you know, Mearsheimer is a very curious case because he has these doctrinal statements that are really kind of over the top and that indicate a sort of hard realism. But in practice, Mearsheimer's views uh, with respect to, say, the Ukraine war and Israel's uh, assault on Gaza are very sensible. And, uh, you know, he finds that he can't actually dispense with those categories of justice and injustice in addressing any of those situations. Uh, but his theory is one that kind of strips away those considerations because it's explicitly sort of anti-normative. It seeks to give an empirical account of how states behave and how they're going to behave. So that kind of realism, I, uh, I, I, I do object to on theoretical grounds, but I find myself in agreement with Beersheimer on uh, particularly with regard to the Ukraine war and the Gaza war. Uh, and he, uh, he he doesn't adhere strictly then to his uh, political science view when he addresses those conflicts. And that's, you know, that's all to the good. Um, so, you know, I'm, I would consider myself something of a liberal realist, more of a liberal than a realist, I suppose, in the sense that I think that the, uh, you know, the liberal tradition, as it was classically understood, uh, contains some um, uh, you know, very useful, important ideas with respect to the use of force in international relations. But it's also demonstrably true that what goes by the name of liberalism in this country today uh, is a far cry from the teachings of previous liberal writers. And uh, so we have this, you know, kind of massive terminological confusion that uh, that exists around the subject. I, I guess I what I would the only thing I would add to that is that, you know, I I think a lot of people will sum up realism by but with that old um, Hugh Thiddity's, uh quote, right? Um, right. The strong do what they will. Right. The strong do what they can. The weak do what they must. But I think in practice. I don't I don't really know anyone that really believes that like that they would want a world in which that is how everything operates. Right. Of course, it would be intolerable. You know, Kissinger, you know, it's really funny to con con contrast Kissinger and Mearsheimer in that regard, because, uh, you know, T Kissinger really did talk like a soft realist. But uh, behind closed doors uh, acted like a hard one in many instances, whereas Mearsheimer is kind of the exact reverse of that. Uh, you know, some of his doctrinal statements reflect a kind of hard, brutal realism that, uh, uh, you know, is harkens back to the speech of the Athenian generals to the Melians. But in practice, you know, he turns out to be something of a softie. Now, I would I would accept from that generalization Mearsheimer's views on China, which uh, I, I find, you know, very incoherent 
because he, you know, wants above all to prevent China from achieving the kind of dominant position in East Asia that the United States has achieved in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, he's, I don't think he gives any kind of satisfactory account of why that should, should be our grand everlasting objective. But at the same time, he's uh, spoken, I think, a lot of good sense with respect to the Ukraine war, emphasizing the importance of NATO expansion for what the Russians uh, uh, did in response, and, and also with respect to uh, Israel's war in Gaza. Also, before closing out, when it comes to the issue of Israel's stated mission of eradicating Hamas, I've had some people say to me that they don't actually think that's achievable. So, you know, there's always been this argument that uh, Hamas is more than just a um, entity that acts as the de facto government of Gaza, or some people would call it the prison gang running an open air prison. Uh, but regardless of how we define Hamas, a lot of people will say it's an idea. And I don't think you're going to get rid of that militant resistance. And I'm, it seems like they have a real infrastructure in the Gaza metro, those tunnels. And I don't think Israel has gone into those tunnels yet. And I think there's a lot of fear on the IDF part of uh, what that entails and how many losses that could entail. So do you think there's a question of whether Israel can actually defeat Hamas? Or do you think people are uh, overstating that? Well, yeah, in general, I agree with the proposition that uh, you can't defeat an idea. And that uh, if if you try to use extreme force against the Palestinians, you're going to incur a tremendous amount of of uh, hostility towards that objective and sympathy towards the Palestinians in vast swaths of the world. So in that case, you know, it, it's totally different from the situation that existed, as I was saying earlier, from Germany and Japan in 1945. Uh, I do kind of think that the Israelis are capable of rendering the Gaza Strip uninhabitable and, uh, in effect, forcing uh, large numbers of people out. Uh, they've already done that in North Gaza. They're in course of doing that in South Gaza. They may very well flood those tunnels with seawater. Uh, rebuilding uh uh, in Gaza, given the existence of that vast array of of underground tunnels, uh, will in fact be extremely difficult, uh, given you know the gigantic mess that the Israeli bombing and other war measures have made of that territory. Now, uh, you know the Israelis are kind of putting them on the beach, and uh, uh, of course there's nothing approaching the necessary tents and humanitarian supplies and such that will enable those people to subsist on the beach. But I think they're getting to a situation where if in fact they do render Gaza uninhabitable, it will very, be very difficult to rebuild anything on that territory. And uh, then, uh, you know, what happens to the remaining population that survives this onslaught, I think is very much in an open question. Uh, I mean, I, I find it to be an incredibly tragic situation because, you know, the Gazans are essentially trapped. 
the Israelis really did go in with the idea that they could kick them all out. And I still think they're wedded to that objective. Uh, but, you know, Egypt threatened war if uh, the Israelis were to try to do that. And uh, the, the um, you know, that the, the removal seems absolutely impossible now. So it's, it, it's just this, there's a set of pressures, some of which are taken for disparate motives. And, and I think essentially the Israelis did not anticipate that leave the Gazans trapped in this impossible humanitarian situation. I mean, it's just god awful. That's uh, something that I, I'm just amazed by. That there were elements in Israel and its think tank culture and whatnot that uh, literally seemed to have thought, "Yeah, well, we'll just push them into the Sinai, and uh, Egypt will accept that." I mean, it, it's so hubristic to me because uh -huh. I mean, I, I think Egypt's stance is we're not going to take in. 2.2 million refugees you know and and you know you have to you have to agree with them it's like why do they have to take them in you know it's well and it's also true too that if that remedy is eligible for gaza why not for the west bank i mean smotrich and ben gavir have made very clear that uh, that's what they want and uh the, the uh, you do have this extreme government in israel uh that's champion at the bit to uh, to conduct a second Nakba in uh, in the West Bank, so I don't really see, you know, if one allows that with respect to the uh, uh, the Gaza situation, why not expulsion from the West Bank? Well, why that wouldn't follow is a logical next step for the Israelis, uh, and it's really kind of an incredible thing because. There was a piece in Haaretz uh, a week or two ago, you know, discussing this and how Meir Kahan, you know, was once uh, an unmentionable and considered an awful figure by liberal opinion in Israel because he proposed expulsion. And now liberal opinion is sort of like on the same page uh, with uh, the Kahanists. Uh, with respect to how to deal with the Palestinian problem. And uh, so, yeah, Israeli opinion is really uh, in a bad way right now, in which the, all the dovish voice, voices, you know, apart from Gideon Levy and a couple of other brave people, have been practically uh, extinguished. And uh, I think, you know, the Biden people, are like really in a bind because, uh, you know, their first political lesson from ever and on is you don't get into a showdown with the Israeli government. And uh, yet at the same time, they're facing this colossal disaster that for which the United States is going to be held culpable. Not and, only that, I mean, for the Biden administration, this could be bad news with the elections coming up because, I mean, you have uh, an Arab contingent in Michigan that that may just walk away from voting for him. So, yeah, we'll see about that. I mean, uh, I do think that uh, that could prove to be very significant uh, in leading people to sit out or just sit at home, uh, not participate, not bring any sort of enthusiasm to the campaign. Um, but you know that. That could change 
given what the alternative is likely to be. Right, right. Oh, the because Trump factor. <laughs> these people do hate Trump with the kind of righteous passion that, uh, so, you know, when it, it's it's a choice between, uh, you know, someone in the eighth circle of hell and someone in the ninth circle. And uh, how, how that's how that's resolved by by young people and uh, people who sympathize with the plight of the Palestinians, you know, it's very difficult to uh, to figure this far away from the election. But yeah, I think I mean it's it's I think it's going to be significant. Last question I had for you. So you you mentioned Reagan and that that phone call that was done with um, Menachem Begin, where he said, you know, there, there's babies with their arms being blown off. This does not look good, and you need to stop. Um, you also mentioned Eisenhower. I don't know as much about Eisenhower and Israel. Maybe you could talk to that a little bit. But uh, the broader thing for me is, why does this special relationship exist, and uh, why are so few willing to challenge it? I mean, the last time we really had someone that – maybe pushed back was uh, H.W. Bush, you know, and his sort of showdown with APAC. Uh, but really, it seems like there's very little pushback against his rally uh, aims when it comes to uh, Israel-Palestine. Well, George H.W. Bush drew a lesson from his defeat in the 1992 campaign, and he himself attributed it to his decision to hold up loan guarantees to uh, Israel to help resettle the vast exodus of Russian Jews who who came to Israel as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And uh, so his son surely took notice of that. And really, ever since that time, since the 1992 elections, American presidents have been scared to death of confronting the Israel lobby. Uh, and that lobby really is formidable. It doesn't only consist of uh, wealthy uh, Jewish supporters of, uh, uh, of Israel, uh, whose financial contributions, you know, are very meaningful and, uh, and who can injure a, a, a president who uh, defies Israel by mobilizing huge sources resources against them. Uh, but, you know, it also consists of the evangelical community in the Bible Belt who have these crazed ideas about the second coming and uh, uh, who constitute a pretty big portion of the electorate. So, uh, I mean, it's 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 hilarious, of course, that the uh, the American Jewish community has this extremely dim view of the evangelicals, <laughs> showing very negative ratings of them in just about every respect. Whereas the evangelicals think the Jews are great, you know, and have a very positive view of them. And uh, that's a uh, that's almost a, a comedic mismatch of, uh, of, of viewpoints. But together, uh, they constitute a formidable... Uh, a basis of support for Israel in American public opinion. And uh, um, so the intensity of views that attend it is also very significant because, you know, polls will show that, I don't know, 68% of the American public think a ceasefire is a good idea. 
Um, but there's also a considerable, you know, latent support for uh, Israel within the uh, within the population. So that puts any president seeking to put pressure on Israel in a very tight spot. And, uh, you know, I don't envy uh, Biden in, in facing that dilemma. It's a very it's a very tough one. And, you know, Bibi may be right in thinking that um, uh, he can impose such pain and penalty on an American president that defies Israel that, uh, uh, you know, they won't in the end do it. <clears throat> At the same time, you know, the United States is totally complicit in uh, in what the Israelis are doing. There was a comment in one of the Israeli papers the other day that, uh, you know, we couldn't begin to conduct this operation without American resupply. They're the ones who were giving us all the bombs, et cetera. And uh, it's the American logistical support is absolutely indispensable for what we're doing. And well, it's, uh, it's also why you're seeing, you know, this, this, um, I guess, uh, I guess there's contentions in the State Department over this. I mean, we have one resignation, Josh Paul, but it, it seems like there's some turmoil over all this. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think in the State Department, they've got to be just totally wringing their hands and shrieking in horror, you know, because it just totally undermines the American narrative about what's going on in the world uh, in so many crucial respects. You know, you compare the number of children that have died in Russia's war um, in Ukraine uh, with the number that have died in uh, Israel's war in Gaza. And it's obviously the case that Russia, in fact, you know, was conducting itself in a fairly discriminate manner with respect to the protection of civilians, that the civilians who died were, in fact, collateral damage, as that was understood. That is, they were not aimed at and were not the targets of Russian military operations, but people who died in the course of Russia hitting military targets. Whereas in the Israeli case, they just basically threw those restraints aside and, uh, you know, have a conception of operations that inevitably leads to uh, an extremely large number of civilian deaths, not only through bombing, but also through uh, the total blockade of, of, of electricity, water, food, etc., that uh, they imposed uh, on Gaza on October 7th and have basically maintained with the exception of those uh, few days of the humanitarian ceasefire for the release of the hostages. So uh, that's a method of war making that is just so over the top and so contrary to the laws of humanitarian warfare that, uh, you know, the impartial world, as it were, can see that very clearly and uh, it's going to lead to a, uh, it, you know, a kind of complete collapse of the uh, legitimacy of American power or the ability of the United States to preach to these other people about human rights. Or, or, or the rules-based order. Yeah. What, what's that? Or the rules-based rules order. order. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the most egregious violation yet. It's not as if there weren't any other violations of the rules-based order by the United States over the last 20 years. In fact, the record is replete with those. Uh, but 
uh, yeah, this is uh, this is pretty much the worst. What's the what's the story on Eisenhower? Because I saw you mention that in the American Conservative article, and I'm not familiar with that. Well, you know the 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 British and the French and the Israelis cooked up this uh, you know wild scheme to uh, to take over uh, the Suez Canal and uh, attended with you know various false flags and such. And uh, when Eisenhower learned of but he was furious and he, uh, he, he told them all to cut it out. And, uh, you know, Britain in particular was, you know, so dependent upon American financial aid and support in 1956 that, uh, they had no alternative but to cut it out. Uh, and, you know, that was a, that was a different era. Uh, it, the 1950s, but yeah, basically Eisenhower, you know, laid down the law with respect to America's allies, and they uh, uh, they saluted smartly and 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 did what he said. Uh, I think the 1991 confrontation over the loan guarantees that Bush undertook was, uh, you know, the last real instance of pushback by an American president uh, on the Israelis. Obama tried it a bit. You know, he sent Kerry over there to, to negotiate with the Israelis, but it was very clear that the United States was not about to imply any sanctions on Israel if it didn't move forward in negotiations with the Palestinians. And, you know, the Israelis basically told Obama and Kerry to stuff it yeah, and there was there was also that. Uh, I mean, Obama and Netanyahu did not get along on the whole JCPOA issue. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and uh, the, yeah, the Israelis, uh, you know, totally uh, objected to that and uh, waged a huge campaign to defeat it in the United States. So, I mean, an American president has just got to fear incurring the wrath of the Israel lobby uh, in, uh, in having a showdown with, uh, with, with Netanyahu. And uh, they feel they must because so much seems to be at stake in terms of the larger position in the world. Uh, but, you know, all their speeches demonstrate a kind of profound ineffectuality and in actually getting the Israelis to... Uh, uh, to change what they're doing. Um, so I kind of felt from the very beginning that there would come a point when uh, Biden would reach, you know, his Reagan moment, the moment that Reagan had in August 1982 when he called Begin and said, this has to stop. Um and almost certainly that will take place before uh, Hamas is destroyed. Um, so it would be difficult for Biden to retreat from the war aim that he himself embraced. So I'm, I, I'm, as I say, I thought from the beginning that that was that that point would come, but it hasn't come yet, and uh, I don't, I don't know if it will. I'm, I, I'm just, I, I don't know what to say about that. I'm actually surprised it hasn't come yet because 
I'll be honest, aside from W. Bush, it seems like every past president that has dealt with Netanyahu, even if they don't confront him, I mean, it is very clear that they do not like this guy and they find him to be kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Sure. That's a very consistent, very consistent pattern, particularly among the Democrats. Right. I mean, that that was absolutely the case with Clinton and Obama. And uh, but even Bush, too, uh, you know, had his difficulties. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they came out for a two state solution and. The Americans are really good about constructing these uh, castles in the sand and saying these beautiful words words about a two-state solution and equal rights for the Palestinians, and then complaining ineffectually when the Israelis just totally ignore them. Uh, And that really has been the pattern, not only of this war, but of the last, you know, 30 years of U.S.-Israeli relations. And, uh, but I think it's doing real damage to the U.S. Uh, role in the world. And uh, it, it's just such a wholesale contradiction to uh, all of those beautiful words that American policymakers have uttered over the years that you would think that at some point the contradictions would become unbearable and they would finally have enough and tell the Israelis no more arms shipments. Uh, you know, you must do a ceasefire. Otherwise, you don't have a relationship with the United States. That's what I think they should say. But I I offer no predictions as to whether they will say. And probably, it. I mean, it's just so politically hazardous uh, for them to say it that uh, it will... It's just so very difficult to see how it's going to ultimately play out. Well, hey, I have to get going, uh, David. I have another interview, but I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. My listeners can find you on uh, Twitter, X, whatever it's being called these days, right? Yes. Yeah, D. Hendrickson 50. And uh, I write, uh, I've been writing a lot for Responsible Statecraft, the American Conservative, and the National Interest, those three outlets. So uh, you can find my uh, stuff there. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. In the final segment of our show today, we'll be speaking with Mohammed Sahimi, a longtime commentator on Iran and U.S. foreign policy, who has contributed to such publications as Responsible Statecraft and antiwar.com. A note that this conversation dealing with Iran's response to the war in Gaza has a, a, a few technical hiccups here and there. I've done as much as I can to fix those up, patch those up as much as possible. We were working with, um, I think, some connectivity problems, but I found this listenable so I want to release it to the world. And with that in mind, let's get right to it with Mohammed Sahimi on Iran's response to the Gaza war. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Mohammed Sahimi, professor at the University 
of Southern California in Los Angeles. Uh, he has spent the past two decades publishing extensively on Iran's political developments and its nuclear program. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me in your program. If you could, you wrote this piece in Responsible Statecraft entitled, Iran's political factions aren't united on Hamas or the Middle East. Uh, so how has Iran thus far reacted uh, to the Hamas attack and then the bombing campaign by Israel of Gaza? Well, in my view, Iran has acted very cautiously and prudently regarding the war between Israel and Palestinians. Uh, Iran, of course, has supported Hamas uh, for uh, over nearly two decades, since 2006, when Hamas won the elections in the West Bank. But Iran was not informed, nor did it have any advance uh, notice of the uh, Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. Uh, U.S. officials and Israeli officials also confirmed that they said that they, they don't have any evidence that indicates Iran participated in planning or executing uh, the, uh, the, the attack. Um, Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah, who is the leader of Lebanese Hezbollah, a Shiite uh, group in Lebanon, uh, which is allied with Iran, also said in a speech that they didn't have uh, advance notice. Um, and they didn't know about the attack that was coming. And then uh, Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei said in a speech that Iran is not going to enter the war uh, and is going to stay out of it. And in fact, there was a meeting of Iran's Supreme National Security Council in which it was decided unanimously that uh, not only Iran did not participate or enter the war between Palestinians and Israel, but also all uh, high officials uh, of, of the Tehran government uh, must not speak in a way that could be interpreted as meaning that Iran and its allies may, may enter at some point uh, in the war. So, so far, I would say that they have acted very prudently and cautiously. If you could, one thing that we hear a lot here in the media is this line that Iran that Hamas is a proxy of Iran, and yet Hamas has actually uh, gone against Iran's leadership uh, in the civil war in Syria, and I believe Hamas is not happy with Iran's reaction uh, to the bombing of Gaza. They're saying, "Why aren't you giving more direct assistance?" Why do you think that this uh, line that Hamas is just an Iran proxy persists in the West? Well, because they, for, for the past 44, 45 years, ever since the Iranian Revolution, they have created a, a cartoonish image of Iran as a nation of wide-eyed people uh, carrying guns and wanting to attack everybody in the Middle East. Whereas Iran political dynamics and internal structure is far more complex. Uh, because of the extremely negative image of Iran that they have created in the West, and in particular in the United States, uh, it is advantageous to uh, neocons and supporters of Israel to try to attach the Palestinian resistance to the Islamic Republic in order uh, to benefit politically. 
Therefore, any any move in the in the Middle East is tied to Iran. But as you said, for example, Hamas is not a puppet of Iran. Uh, in fact, there was a breakup, as you also mentioned, between the Islamic Republic and Hamas after Hamas supported the uh, the opposition to Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria during the uh, Syrian uh, civil war. And because of that, which angered both the Assad regime and um, the, the Tehran government, uh, there was a rupture in their relationship for several years. And then back in 2020, um, um, the, the relations were mended. Uh, it is no secret that Iran attacked, uh, Iran helps uh, Hamas, but Hamas, uh, uh, they have their own ideals, they have their own plans, they have they have their own decision makers, and they don't uh, seek, uh, you know, or take order uh, from Tehran. Let's also not forget that Hamas is, in fact, a Palestinian branch of uh, Muslim Brotherhood, and Muslim Brotherhood is a Sunni group, whereas Iran is a is a Shia country. So, because of that, there are also differences of. Uh, uh, in terms of religion and uh, political uh, direction between the Sunnis and the Shiites, and in particular between Hamas and uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, in Tehran. So one point of that article that I published was that unless what uh, Neocon said right away, and unless what uh, Israel lobby said right away, Iran didn't know about the attack, Iran didn't uh, participate in planning of the attack, and Iran has no intention of entering the war uh, at this point. And in fact, as I discussed in the article, there are a variety of opinions about what to do, in, uh, what to do about the Middle East and the war. Um, um, various factions arguing with each other, various factions, uh, hotly debating what they should do and so on. And uh, Iran is not uh, a monolithic country where, like for, for example, North Korea, for example, where nobody can say anything uh, other than what, what the leader says. And there is very uh, dynamic uh, discussions uh, going on within Iran. And all sorts of opinions have been expressed regarding the Near East and the war between Palestinians and Israel. So you argue that that uh, Iran's political factions agree on a few things. So they agree that they want the U.S. to leave the Middle East. Uh, they want to raise the costs of the maximum, maximum pressure policy that began with the Trump administration has continued under Biden. And uh, they also believe in uh, having a strong deterrence against possible military attacks by the U.S. and or Israel. And they support the rights of the Palestinian people. Uh, however, uh, they don't seem to agree necessarily on how to put these policies into effect. Uh, and you draw a line between the hardliners and then moderates or pragmatists. Uh, can you describe the hardliner versus moderate slash pragmatist divide in Iran? Yes. Yes, let's take the issue of uh, all factions wanting the United States forces. The audio got a little bit wonky for a second there. Mohammed was saying that all factions in Iran want the U.S. to get out of the Middle East. The hardliners think that the way to do it is uh, to make uh, alliances 
uh, with other world powers such as China and Russia and uh, arming uh, Iran's allies in the Middle East in order to create uh, problems for the United States forces in the Middle East uh, so that they would eventually uh, moderate reformists and pragmatists believe that the best way of doing it is uh, to try to reduce tension in the Middle East. And the way to do it is to, uh, uh, to mend the relationship with Arab countries of the Persian Gulf and uh, not make Israel uh, and what it does, uh, you know, uh, of uh, central focus of Iran foreign policy. You can already see that they, there, are, there are major differences between the two factions. Uh, they also talk about uh, ending uh, um, uh, or making uh, maximum pressure policy by the United States a costly uh, policy for the United States. The hardliners believe that uh, the way to do it is uh, to, for example, ratchet up Iran's nuclear program and uh, and uh, do other things, um, give military help to Russia in its war with Ukraine and so on, so that the U.S. will, um, will pay a high price for it. The moderates, on the other hand, believe that the way to do it is to get close uh, to European Union, have uh, extensive commercial and political relations with the European Union uh, and other countries uh, that uh, that would help uh, uh, moderate Iran's image outside. Uh, the hardliners believe that Iran must have a strong uh, deterrent against possible attacks by the US and, and or Israel, uh, the pragmatists and moderates agree that Iran should have a strong deterrent, but they also agree that one component of this deterrent is uh, um, holding uh, free elections in Iran and uh, uh, listening to people so that the majority of people support the government uh, as they believe that having the support of the majority of people is one of the, uh, the strongest deterrent against any, any foreign power. They always, for example, point out to Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq, and they say if Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq had support of majority of Iraqis, uh, the United States and Britain would not have dared to uh, invade Iraq. But because uh, the regime was uh, sort of isolated and only a tiny minority um, uh, supported it, and the U.S. Britain uh, took advantage of it and invaded, and invaded the country. Uh, the hardliners believe that in order to support Palestinians, um, the only way to do it is to arm them so that they would fight with uh, Israel. Uh, on the other hand, the pragmatists and moderates believe that uh, the support that you, uh, Iran should give to Palestinians should be first and foremost political support, supporting them in international organizations such as, such as the United Nations and so on, and also if any material help is going to be given to Palestinians, it should be humanitarian aid to, for example, Red Cross and uh, channels like that. So you can see, while they do agree on certain principles regarding Iran's foreign policy, they do not agree on how to implement these agreements regarding U.S. policy. And these are the kind of debates that have always been going on in Iran. They have always been hotly debated, and a lot of people have been involved. And if you look at, if you knew Farsi, for example, and look at Iran's internal website, 
you will see that these discussions are going on all the time. Could you speak a little bit to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and their posturing after the war started? What's their aim in all of this? Well, the philosophy of Islamic Revolutionary Guard or IRGC has been that in order to defend Iran, uh, we need to uh, move the front, the possible war front, away from Iranian border. In other words, we need to move the uh, the front war, the, the front of any possible war with Israel or the United States uh, away from Iranian national border. Uh, so for that, uh, they have uh, they have uh, allied themselves with several groups throughout the Middle East. They have allies in Iraq. They have allies in Lebanon. Uh, they have allies in Syria, in Yemen, and so on. So all of these groups uh, are part of what they call the axis of resistance. And their resistance is against supposedly Israel and the United States. Uh, so that's their philosophy. To defend Iran, move the possible war from away from Iranian border so that they would not be able to attack Iran directly through the borders or invade Iran. Uh, so for that, for example, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon has received considerable dif- uh, aid from Iran. Uh, Hamas has received aid. Iraqi Shiites uh, have always been allied with Iran, uh, even when Saddam Hussein the regime was in power. And they were trained and equipped and uh, uh, armed by Iran. And the, the Houthis in Yemen, after Saudi Arabia started attacking Yemen, uh, also received healthy uh, Iran. So all of these groups are basically uh, form a sort of a united front, uh, most of whom also are Shiites or a branch of Shiites, uh, to uh, to stand up to what they consider as aggression by Israel and the United States. What's the argument the sort of moderate voices have when it, when it comes to calling for restraint? Is it just a matter of fear of a wider war that could engulf Iran being, you know, disastrous? Is that the driving force for uh, moderates and pragmatists in Iran? Well, that's that's one factor, and that's an important factor. Even among hardliners, there are many people that um, believe that uh, uh, Iran should avoid uh, a war, a direct war, between the United and or Israel. Uh, and the reason for it is that, as one of the senior uh, IRGC officers recently said that, uh, he said that after uh, the Trump administration assassinated Major General Qasem uh, Soleimani, who was the commander of uh, Iran's special forces uh, in the Middle East, the Quds Force, uh, we could have attacked all the U.S. military bases uh, throughout the Middle East. Uh, but that would have uh, uh, ignited uh, a war with the United States, and the United States would have bombed Iran very extensively. As a result of which, uh, thousands of people would have been killed. Uh, Iran's industrial uh, centers would have been destroyed, and so on. And the development of the country would have been set back by at least two decades. Uh, so we should avoid uh, such a war. And that that fear of destruction and the fact that Iran, because of the uh, um, sanctions imposed on uh, importing any advanced weapons, 
Uh, and the fact that Iran doesn't have a mother air force derives uh, derives uh, this idea that we should not uh, try to take on the United States directly, or we should not enter a war with the United States. And this is what this is also what um, the pragmatists and moderates also say that they say that it will destroy uh, Iran's industrial bases, it will kill thousands of people, it might ignite all sorts of uh, chaos around the country. And the country will not be as stable for a uh, um, couple of decades at least. And something like, for example, what happened to Libya in 2011 may happen uh, in Iran. So they want to avoid that at all costs. With regards to President Ibrahim Raisi, uh, you say that he's adopted a hardline approach or, or a hardline stance of sorts uh, regarding the war in Gaza, but that his stance may be... Uh, adopt it as a way to distract from a few things happening in Iran itself and uh, sort of administrative failures. Could you speak to that? Yes, of course. Raisi is a hardliner, and Raisi has always advocated uh, a hardline policy. But uh, at the same time, given that all the attentions are now sort of focused on the war uh, between Israel and Palestinian, Raisi has, has also tried to use that to distract from uh, the failure of his policy over the past uh, two years. Because when he was running for president, he promised a lot of uh, uh, improvement in the, in the national economy in terms of inflation, unemployment, and so on. And uh, none of them has materialized. And in fact, uh, inflation has gotten worse. So one way of uh, uh, distracting people's attention from internal problem is try to focus their attention on external problem. And this is not anything new. Even in the United States, for example, we know that uh, when when there is an external threat or an external uh, threat of war, people rally around the flag and people don't say anything regarding their discontent within the country. Uh, and uh, it, it is said that, for example, George W. Bush told the Mexican president when Bush was president that if if you want to uh, avoid addressing internal problem, start a war. Uh, this is this is well known. Uh, so Raisi is basically doing the same thing. His policies have failed. His government has been has not been able to improve the daily lives of people. So he tries to use uh, Israel Hamas or Israel Palestinian war. Uh, as, as a means of distracting people's attention by taking very hard line uh, and um, espousing those uh, hardline uh, positions. It sounds like one of the key differences between moderates and hardliners in Iran is uh, summed up by what former former Foreign Minister Mohammad uh, Zarif uh, said, which was, uh, "What has preserved Iran is not its weapons, but its people." So. It sounds like there's a divide between the camp that believes, you know, arms, alliances with China, Russia, et cetera, is what's what's the most important thing right now. And the other side, the moderates saying, you know, we should be developing closer relations with our neighbors and the Arab nations of the Persian Gulf. And we should probably have uh, pretty deep reforms in Iran itself. Uh, to deal with the local populace's unrest. Is that the key difference between the hardliners and the moderate elements? Yes. Yes, that's exactly the, the difference. The moderates say that 
There are two things that we need to do. Lower the tension in the region by mending our relationship with Arab countries of the Persian Gulf and not focusing so much on Israel and Palestinians and let the Palestinians uh, do their fighting and we support them politically and by humanitarian aid. But the second thing is pay attention to the internal situation uh, in, uh, in order to gain the support of the people. Uh, because the fact is um, the regime in Tehran has lost a lot of its internal support because of its uh, failed policies, both in terms of uh, political and human rights of the citizens and in terms of the mismanagement and, and the corruption that exists within Iran. So as Zarif put it, uh, and you repeated it nicely, uh, he said what has uh, preserved Iran over the past 45 years since Iranian revolution has been the people. So in order to preserve the country, to protect the country, the best thing is to go back to people. And the way to go back to people is to have deep irreversible reform, have completely uh, free competitive elections so that people can, can, um, can elect their own representative and um, let the reform uh, address uh, problems of mismanagement, uh, corruptions, uh, censorship, and so on. And that put us in a very, very strong position to defend the country against any foreign threats. Uh, so that's, um, as you summarized it very nicely, that's the main difference between the two camps. Last thing I wanted to ask you, and I know this is not covered in the responsible statecraft piece you wrote on the 24th, but uh, if Hamas is able to somehow survive uh, this war, will that mean that there will probably be strained relations between Hamas and the Islamic Republic in Iran? Because as I said earlier, it seems Hamas uh, expected uh, Iran and its allies uh, to have provided more assistance. Could this lead to maybe some strain in that relationship? Well, first of all, let me uh, tell you my opinion. Hamas will not be destroyed uh, because Hamas is not just a bunch of crazy guys that you know attack Israel uh, and, and, and fight with Israel. Hamas is an idea, and it has roots among the problems that Palestinians have. And the problem is that, at least for the past 56 years, since 1967, Israel has occupied Palestinian lands and has refused to leave and has made the conditions for Palestinians worse every single day. So the radicalism of Hamas has its roots in this discontent that exists uh, among Palestinians. Uh, and while I don't uh, support Hamas's uh, attack on civilians, for example, and taking hostage uh, women and children and so on, the problem cannot be addressed militarily. Uh, the problem has to be, uh, the solution is political, and the political solution is establish an independent Palestinian state. Now, Hamas, in my view, will survive, and now whether the relation between Hamas and the Islamic Republic will be a strain after the war ends, uh, I doubt it, because the bottom line is Hamas, in order to survive, needs help, uh, either financial or otherwise. And this help uh, has to come from somewhere. Iran is not the only country that helps Hamas. Uh, Qatar, for example, where Hamas political leader, Ismail Haniyeh, lives, also provides a lot of help. Uh, which actually challenged uh, to Israel before the war. Uh, and 
other Arab countries, people in other Arab countries, rich people in other Arab countries, also give support to Hamas. But at the same time, Hamas still needs this help. And I doubt that um, after the war, there will be a rupture in the relationship between the Islamic Republic and Hamas, uh, uh, or uh, even uh, a weakening of the relationship. I think the relationship will remain uh, at, at the current level, if not the stronger. In closing, is there anything else you wanted to add on this topic of the Gaza war, uh, the Israel-Palestine issue, um, and Iran? Uh, Is there anything I missed that you think is important for my listeners to know? Well, the the solution for Palestinian-Israel problem was actually proposed by former Iranian reformist president, Mohammad Khatami back in 2003, when the Bush administration was in power. But the Bush administration was after war with Iran and didn't pay any attention to it. At that time, Khatami suggested the following. He suggested through a, a proposal that was sent to the United States through the Swiss embassy in Tehran, which takes care of US interests in Iran. Um, he suggested that first, Iran will uh, uh, ask Hezbollah to disarm and become a purely political uh, and, and social organization. Second, Iran will put its nuclear program under a strict inspection and control by International Atomic Energy Agency. Third, Iran will accept any solution uh, for, the, uh, for the Palestinian problems that has been uh, agreed upon by Israel and Palestinians, and fourth, Iran will improve its relationship um, by uh, uh, doing, taking certain steps throughout the Middle East in order to improve the relationship and lessen tension in the Middle East uh, and between Iran and Western Europe and the United States. This was a very constructive uh, proposal, but the Bush administration rejected that. And at that time, it is said that the change said that we don't deal with uh, terrorists. Uh, okay, so um, 20 years after that, we are in 2003, uh, 2023, and the, the proposal was made in 2003. 20 years after that, we have come back to the same thing. Uh, you need to have to solve Palestinian-Israel problem by establishing uh, uh, by establishing an independent Palestinian state. If that happens, then no matter how radical or how extreme Iranian leaders uh, take a position, that did not have any effect. Because as soon as the problem is solved, not only that excuse is taken away from Iran's hardliners, but it also uh, will be taken away from terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS and so on. Because they all pretend that they want to fight with, with Israel and the United States because of what has happened to Palestinians. So if you want to solve that problem, and if you want to solve the terrorism problem, you have to solve the Palestinian problem. And the only solution for it is a, a, a true state solution, whereby Israel and Palestinians live side by side in their own independent country. I want to thank you, Mohammed Sahimi, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? Are you mainly writing for Responsible Statecraft now, or...? You know, I, I usually write in response to the statecraft, but I also have uh, extensive archives at antiwar.com. I also have at low blog, used to be uh, low blog that now is a state, uh, a response to the statecraft at Huffington Post and so on. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed this three-parter, three-segment edition of the show. As always, if you appreciate the work here, I do at Parallax Views. Please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I could use your support at this vital time. So once again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.